Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. Today we are joined by Freddie DeBoer, a writer out of Brooklyn, New York, USA. We discuss his classic essay, Planet of Cops, a brilliant commentary on how social justice has turned into a culture of surveillance and accusation. We talk about free speech and why leftists should care about it, the importance of thinking through our own political stances, and how to build socialism with freaky options. So, welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We're here today with Freddie DeBoer. I'm very excited for this interview. So, Freddie, thank you for coming onto the pod. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, Freddie DeBoer is a uh, writer living in Brooklyn. Is that where you're living? That's where I'm living. Okay. New York, <laughs> the United States. Um, and uh, yeah, we're super excited to have Freddie on. We've been uh, we've we've been a, a fan of Freddie's work for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool to finally get to talk to him uh, face to face. Yeah, I would say that your work is super influential to the pod, so it's really cool to have you on. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I appreciate your saying so. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, I am a. Uh, I guess former academic uh, and current writer. I uh, have a newsletter on Substack, um, which pays my rent, um, in which I write about culture, politics, uh, a lot of education. I review books uh, and anything else that I feel like writing about. Um, I started blogging in 2008 at a public library on a free blogger blog. And from there, I went on to write for places like the New York Times and the LA Times and the Washington Post and Harper's, et cetera. Uh, my first book came out last year, The Cult of Smart, which is about um, uh, education, meritocracy, and the reality of academic talent. Uh, I'm currently working on the proposal for my second book. And uh, yeah, I write, and uh, I'm privileged enough to be able to do that as my full-time job, and I'm, I'm happy to be able to do that. Fuck yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so yeah, I was mentioning this before we started recording, but for our listeners, Freddie wrote an essay um, a few years ago that's called Planet of Cops. Um, and anybody who follows my work has probably heard me mention it. I'm sure we've probably even mentioned it on the podcast before. I think we have, we probably yeah. have. And basically, like last year when I was getting canceled brutally, um, I found this essay and it was like really um, meaningful for me. I have a um, portion of it framed in my bathroom. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, Freddie. Um, just about Planet of Cops, basically, for people who are listening who haven't actually read the essay, like, would you be willing to just explain the point you're making in that essay, what you're, what you're arguing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, whenever I talk about whatever you want to call it, cancel culture or the current state of social liberalism or, or, or whatever, or identity politics, political correctness, I like to use the term social justice politics just because it seems kind of neutral. But um, whatever I'm talking about is revealing to people things that they already know, uh, but are afraid to say in public spaces. Um, and Planet of Cops is very much that way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that there's anyone who has read that essay 
and said, what is this strange world he's describing? I think that it is something that people understand to be the world in which we live, which is um, within the leftish side of the political spectrum, particularly within like social liberalism, you want to call it or whatever this is, um, we have descended into a world of um, constant recrimination um, of mutual surveillance where we always uh, look at each other and judge each other and never stop judging each other, um, where we have ritual show trials, where we have uh, witch burnings, like your public cancellation, like my public cancellation, like others, whether you deserve mm -hmm. or not, something we can talk about, but um, where the, the, the discursive space in which what was once called social liberalism, whatever we want to call it now, has become just a brutal, brutal place and where um, uh, we are constantly in the process of um, scourging each other, destroying each other and seeking out heretics to punish. Um, and uh, as part of the point of the essay is to say that this is not intrinsic. This does not stem from our actual political commitments, that it doesn't have to be this way. That there was a time when it wasn't this way, that I grew up in and have experienced profoundly radical, profoundly queer, profoundly um, uh, sort of uh, progressive spaces that uh, did not feature any of this kind of atmosphere. And that we have the opportunity and the choice to choose to be better to each other, um, but that at present, um, it's a place of constant psychic and emotional brutality. And I, for one, find it rather unpleasant. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've noticed about the social justice like world, which we, we call the nexus, we just like made up a word for it because we were sick of not having a good word for it. So we call it the nexus. Um, is that it, yeah, it doesn't even have like a name for itself. You know, it just kind of pretends yeah. like it is completely normal. And, and one of the effects of that is that it really seems to people like it's sort of like a, it's always been that way that that there was never like a process that led to it being that way mm -hmm. um one of the things that we wanted to question uh, ask you about was yeah i mean so you've been involved in liberation movements for a long time as you write in planet of cops um the dynamics that you describe in planet of cops while they've always been the norm for the right as you point out yeah. um are, are sort of like that now they've become the new norm for segments of the left and we wanted to ask you if you have any ideas about how and why this happened yeah i mean i guess one thing that might be of interest to your to your listeners i don't talk about this a lot on the internet because i'm not trying to get over by mentioning it but i've been an activist a lot longer than i've been a writer um i have been an activist since i was i don't know 16 years old i mean i grew up in a socialist household and um i mean i i helped organize my first gay marriage rally in 1997 um which is like two decades before Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, became a publicly supporter of, of gay marriage. Yeah. Um, during the Iraq war, I was a 20 hour a week anti-Iraq war activist. Nowadays, I am a housing activist here in New York City and I am on a hotline for tenants rights and I uh, go to rallies and I help do in services, et cetera, et cetera. I just say that to mention that like I have a certain degree of skin in the game in real world politics. And I think part of what gets distorted is that all these discussions are run through uh, Twitter, that um, Twitter becomes the, the public consciousness about everything that's going on within the left. And it becomes very difficult for people to understand that you know, Twitter is a very um, influential space filled with elite people, but it's also a very particular space that is not the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, Twitter has created the assumption that all right-thinking engage in politics, not only on the level of the substance, right? So there are positions like 
gay people should be able to marry, right? Same-sex people should be able to marry. Transgender people should be recognized for the, their gender, their self-identified gender, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of things that, you know, that we associate with those. There's that sort of set of sort of political and, and policy commitments that's of substance. But then there's also the procedural things, right? And procedural things are things like people should have the presumption of innocence. We should assume that people are speaking in good faith. If someone makes a mistake, we should give them the opportunity to address that mistake. We should take apologies seriously. We should uh, practice forgiveness, et cetera. And one of the things that Twitter has done is that it has welded this sort of ultra, uh, what I would call ultra regressive, uh, barbaric, uh, super punitive vision of procedure, where if you screw up once, then you are a bad person and should be condemned to that for the rest of your life. Um, to these politics and these policies, which are not necessarily welded. So what I mentioned in that space right. that, you know, my father lived in New York for 10 years and he was in the black box theater scene uh, in the 1970s. And um, I, his friends are the people who I grew up around. And so my, you know, my, as a child, my, my environment was, you know, drag queens and former junkies and, uh, and radicals and communists and, you know, the kind of people who had hole in the wall apartments in the village that they paid $400 a month for back when that existed, you know, and those people had these radical commitments in terms of gender and uh, uh, sexual preference and race, etc. long before Twitter even existed, but they married them to a kind of radical openness and a commitment to forgiveness and to working through things because they knew that they were a tiny minority among other reasons. They knew that they were a tiny minority that they didn't have uh, it in them to sort of constantly be policing each other. And so there was a, that same set of beliefs in terms of what is true and what people should have the right to do, but it was wedded to a far more forgiving, humane, hospitable way. And part of what I'm talking about in that essay is that like, that has existed in the past. There's no reason it, it, does, it, it can't exist in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important. It's really well said. Um, yeah, so I feel like this kind of leads directly into the next question really well, which is that, like, free speech, the concept of free speech was traditionally a thing that leftists fought for. And it was traditionally something that leftists actually, like, really, like, firmly believed in, not because they believed in in anything that anyone was going to say. Obviously, they would take issue with various ideas um, that were being put forth, but they generally, it was a leftist position that people should be able to speak because otherwise where does that lead right and now in the in the so-called left or whatever we want to call this space the the nexus as we call it um like free speech is seen as like totally totally suspect and if you argue for that you're definitely seen as right wing like it's seen as like a right wing position now um so i just want to ask you like why do you think that free speech is something that leftists should care about I mean, politics now is almost purely associative. I mean, politics has always been largely associative, but now it's really associative because um, what I mean by associative is just like the purpose of politics is to identify yourself within a particular social milieu. You say like, mm-hmm. I am a member of this of this group. Um, and that's always been true to a certain extent. Um, but I think that it's intensified in the internet era for a variety of reasons. One of the biggest ones is that we don't have civic social institutions the way mm-hmm. that we used to. And so people feel like their only place for belonging is on the internet. So um, yeah. once upon a time, there was, you know, bowling leagues and Elks clubs and the union lodge, et cetera. And those were opportunities to engage with people who are not in your family, 
people went to church a lot more. And so you had social groups that did the things that social groups have to do for people, which is like provide validation and support and emotional uh, security and friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a vast number of people, all of that's been farmed out into the internet. Right? Yeah. Um, the sociological research says that like, as the number of networks has expanded and expanded, the number of close friends that the average person has is actually shrunk. And so politics becomes associative purely because you can't afford to risk those friends that you have on Twitter or Tumblr or anywhere else because you see that as being your only uh, source of emotional support. And so um, when you see someone on the right saying free speech is good, right? If you have this kind of fundamental insecurity about your politics and your place in your world, you're going to say free speech is bad because the way that you define yourself as a member of your group is by uh, contraposing yourself to the group that you're not. Um, I don't think that the average liberal is genuinely opposed to free speech the way that they say that they are. I just think that they've been trained to, to think, oh, Glenn Greenwald likes free speech and he's an asshole who's not part of my tribe, so therefore I'm against it, right? In some ways you would say, well, I guess that's better because they don't really have a strong you know, principled reaction against, um, against free speech, but in some ways it's worse because it means that like there's no there there, there's nothing to access, there's nothing to convince them about. I would argue that you know, there are just various levels on which we should defend free speech. The first is just simply like on principle, in a very primal and deep way, I think people should be able to express what they want. Uh, uh, and I could go on at length about that. The second thing is that like what you empower for others is what you empower against yourself. So one of the bizarre things about the current moment is that like, you know, uh, liberals and leftists are forever celebrating uh, when Google or Facebook or Twitter censors a conservative, not seeming to understand that like those institutions are not aligned with you politically. Yeah, me, me, me and Clementine are both like nodding furiously right now. So for those, I'm sorry, continue, continue. Sorry, I don't mean I don't mean a monologue. No, no, um, no why it you is monologue. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, like the, those institutions are, are, uh, are doing what's in their short-term financial best interest. And if the worm turns, and it will turn because politics is cyclical, and it becomes in the best interest of Facebook to censor you, that sen- Facebook will censor you. And it will be all the easier because you cheerleaded it when it happened to Milo or whoever. And then like third and finally, just like free speech is popular. Right. Like they, they do public opinion polling about like not just candidates and uh, uh, issues, but about like concepts like free speech. Free speech is, in fact, massively popular with huge swaths of the American population. Uh, it's not there's there's no racial group that is uh, on net anti free speech. Uh, free speech is uh, depending on which polling you look at. It's more uh, popular than any individual po- uh, politician you can name. And if we want to get into the weeds, you know, like the, the transgender rights, which uh, is a movement that I know that all three of us in broad strokes support, mm-hmm. um, people, Americans are vastly more favorable to free speech than they are to the transgender rights movement in general. And so you say, as a matter of basic political strategy, right, if we have a young, fragile movement like the tra- transgender rights movement, and we're trying to bring it into public consciousness and make it more popular, do we want to align it? with free speech and make it, it, it associated with a popular thing? Or do we want to insist that it's bad and then counterpose it with a popular thing so that people feel like they have to choose? From my perspective, like the politics of that are so fucked up and stupid that it can only happen on the internet. <laughs> so fucking real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like along with that, it's like, you know, if you if you want to convince people of your perspective or whatever, it's hard to convince people 
of something if they're not even allowed to say what they think in the first place so that you could at least have a conversation with them about it you know <laughs> like the free speech thing and the transgender thing is like that's like a very heated like combination of issues because you know like the whole turf stuff where like turfs are saying this and that and then people are trying to silence them but like one one of our earlier episodes we talked about just like what if we had conversations with people and instead of like yelling at them to shut up we actually talked about why some of these ideas might even be appealing to them you know um and it's also really true what freddie's saying that like you know if you want to convince someone who's skeptical of transgender rights that they you know should change their tune like one really effective way to do that would be to yeah like to marry it with the idea of free expression and say that um to to express yourself in the world in in a way that is you know like aligned with with um being transgender um is an expression issue you know totally that makes sense yeah, I mean, look, like I, you know, I think there are an awful lot of things that can be said about the gay rights movement from the last 25 years or whatever, um, from uh, it emerging as something that was, you know, went from a genuinely fringe thing. I mean, you have to understand that, like, you know, um, NAMBLA, you know, the National American Men Boy Love Association, whatever, which is always invoked as this crazy 70s thing, which was a pro-pedophilia organization. It's not clear to what degree it was ever actually a thing, but like, it, it had a national presence and it's important to say that like in the 80s when I was a kid like you know the gay rights movement writ large did not poll or was not seen favorably compared to that organization by very much right okay, in, other, in other words like things were so bad when I was you know a five-year-old that um pedophilia and it was it was you know it was they were pretty close uh, in yeah. uh, in the, the sense of popularity um, now uh, gay rights gay marriage is uh is not only legal everywhere in the United States it is popular almost everywhere in the United States. Um, a uh, significant majority of Republicans now support gay marriage like that. In 2004, George Bush, George W. Bush ran against gay marriage, uh-huh. right? Like the issue was the wedge issue and that he used to win his presidency. And now nobody uh, goes against it. Now, the roots from which we got there, many people debate and make some critiques that I think are very important and salient. And the biggest one is simply that the gay rights movement was de-radicalized in the process of getting here, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, um, that there was, you know, that if you look at things like, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the early, like late 70s and 1980s, things were very radical in one way, then AIDS comes up and you have things like ACT UP, which are very, uh, which are very radical and have a lot of demands. Um, and those are traditions that are sort of the radicalism inherent to the gay rights movement. But the way that gay rights won is through normalization, yeah. which was, there was a process of saying, you know somebody gay, you don't know it yet, but someday you will. And when you realize, oh, my neighbor, my son, my cousin, whatever, that person's gay, then it opens you up to the possibility that gay people aren't uh, degenerates, but that there's regular people. Right. And there's definitely downsides to that, right? Like, um, you know, they people love to say like, you know, the first pride was a riot, the next one should be too. And it's like, maybe the next pride will be a riot. But if it is, I promise you that like Bank of America is going to be hand- handing out little pride flags, right? Like that the, um, the, as these things become successful, they become normalized and in becoming normalized, they become commodified and they become sucked up into the beast of capitalist culture. And that is a real problem. Yeah. But I can't deny the fact that, you know, the people who, uh, people who, I don't want to say the people, some people who did a huge amount of work to make gay marriage legal, to uh, make gay adoption legal in many places, and to, in general, spread the normalization and acceptance of gay people were very vanilla, cisgender gay men 
who wanted you to know that they wore khakis and they went home in your Subaru and they lived a normal life with you, right? Yeah. And certainly something is lost when you're de-radicalized in that way, but it was very effective in getting, you know, you know, white women in Kansas to say, oh, well, whatever, I don't care, right? Totally. So the question that confronts the transgender rights movement, I think, is like, you know, um, is there a way to achieve acceptance in that way and achieve political victory uh, without uh, necessarily sacrificing some of the radical edge? Now, I don't know. But I do know that, like, the current tactic seems to be to, like, make trans issues so incredibly fraught to make them frightening to people, where the costs of appearing to oppose uh, trans advocates or the overall trans cause is so intense that it will immediately ruin your career and your life. To me, that is like the opposite of what you want to do, right? Again, like we want a de-escalation. We want people to take it down and make things seem more normal so that you can have normal conversations and you can engage, oh yeah, I know a trans person, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But these are the kind of things that like, it's not just that I don't like where the strategic conversation is. I'm not sure where the strategic conversation is even being held because it just seems like a lot of yelling. What well, it isn't yeah, like there is, is no strategic conversation. conversation. And like, yeah. yeah, you know, like, of course, um, I mean, we're, we have a question about this later. We're going to talk about it. But like, of course, we love uh, freaky shit, you know, but uh, people should have the option to also be normal. Like that's there's there's actually nothing wrong with just being a normal person who wears khakis and fucking drives a Subaru. Like that's that's like every everybody <laughs> you know like i mean but it's it's worth saying like since i referenced those people that i grew up around you know like um the kind of queer people that i grew up around didn't want anything to do with marriage yeah like, absolutely gay marriage was a was it correctly seen as like a pacifying normie shit thing for yeah. a gay activist to be into and it was for the readers you know like and there's there's all sort of things that comes along with that you know i, I one thing that i you know i think the younger generation doesn't understand is like um, if you watch some older movies that have maybe not super sympathetic portrayals of gay men, one of the ways that they're unsympathetic is that they portray gay men as sort of misogynistic. In a lot of these movies, there's gay men who like don't obviously don't like women. Mm-hmm. And the part of the reason why those portrayals exist is because there were a lot of gay men who didn't like women back then. Like I, I, I grew up around it. Like there was a lot of casual misogyny and a lot of nasty shit that gay men would say about women for a lot of complicated reasons. And there's all sorts of sociology and culture going in there, but like that's an evolution that I'm glad has happened. But again, like you have to look at it from the perspective of the system and say, okay, you know, what is the goal in terms of integrating what have been sexual and gender minorities into the tapestry of Americanness? It is not clear to me what the goal is right now for trans people. There are specific issues on which I'm in complete agreement. I think that uh, people should recognize uh, uh, it's a matter of, uh, of sort of politeness and, uh, mm-hmm. and personal ethics. They should recognize the gender identities of other people uh, that, that we should, uh, for those who are ready and prepared for it, we should be providing government funded uh, transition medicine, et cetera. But like, there's no big overarching, like how do we, how do we achieve success with transgender rights in the same way there was marriage had just became the, the cause to end all cause among, uh, well, primarily among cisgender gay men. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a, a listless sort of vehicle that is not really going in any direction, but as it's going, right, anyone who gets caught up in it is getting their reputations destroyed if they're seen as being against the movement. And again, I don't know for what good or to what purpose. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this kind of leads us to our next question. I mean, we're talking about trying to get people to accept, you know, new progressive ideas, um, but also we're trying to get people, we're talking about what happens within progressive groups when people like can't necessarily agree on like simple things, um, or maybe I shouldn't say simple things, but like things that, things about which there is room to disagree, right? And, and I mean, it leads us to the question of tolerance. And right. Um, in your essay, you talk about how the people you grew up with, while, you know, certainly imperfect in lots of ways, well, actually, maybe even because they were imperfect in lots of ways, were, um, a quote, uh, tolerant in the true sense. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by like a true tolerance, as opposed to, you know, a kind of like astroturf uh, idea of tolerance that is often bandied about. I mean, a tolerance in, it, within it implies the idea that you don't like what you're tolerating, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, so this is an interesting inversion because there was this, so again, you know, using the, the gay rights movement as like this recent uh, successful example is um, it started out as a movement for tolerance, right? In other words, you need to recognize that there are people in the world who are not like you and that have rights and that whether you, you know, want it in your homes or not, right? Um, they deserve rights. And so you had a lot of early, you know, you know, whether you want to call them this or not, you know, allies who were, um, excuse me, um, sort of uh, conventional people who uh, said, well, I don't want that on my TV or whatever, or I don't want it in my home, but you know, I recognize that they're Americans too and they have the right to do whatever they want in the bedroom. And that for a little while was the goal, right? Like there was a time where that was like convincing people to get to that level was seen as the immediate political need. Then as time went on, that became insufficiently radical and it was insufficiently um, sort of uh, progressive and people said, well, no, you need to actually accept that these are perfectly legitimate lifestyles that are just as valid as your own. Um, and I think that there's been considerable progress there uh, as well. But um, something is lost when you insist that political victory only means when people come to see everything the same way that you do, right? right. We live in a fundamentally like pluralistic multicultural democracy and people don't agree with things with each other and uh, they have to learn to, uh, to live together, uh, even with things that they don't like. So one of the things, you know, um, I believe they ended this. I'm not sure I have to double check. But I believe that they ended this because it was considered to be uh, uh, offensive. But uh, there was a time in like the late 90s when if you were immigrating to the Netherlands, right, part of your naturalization process was that uh, they made you look at things like video of men kissing, right? And the idea was to say, this is a country where gay people have the right to be publicly gay. And if you're gonna come here and live here, great, but you have to be willing to live alongside this, right? Um, and, uh, and of course, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole discussion we could have about the fact that, um, you know, uh, that there was a lot of Muslim immigration at that time. And that there's all this, you know, stuff that's still going on in Holland right now about that stuff. But anyway, built into this was the conception that, um, the, the goal of democracy is not to make everybody like each other or accept each other's lifestyle. The goal of democracy is just to let, get them to live with each other sufficiently that we can have a functioning society. And I think that it can only appear to be that we should instead have a goal of everyone believing the exact same thing. Again, if you've never left an Ivy League campus, yeah. if you are uh, on you know, woke Twitter 24 seven, uh, if you're in publishing and you run a, uh, a you know, a quote unquote diverse imprint, like if you're in these tiny enclaves that yeah. liberals have siloed themselves in, then it seems like uh, 
you know, possible that maybe we'll make everyone into a woke liberal Democrat. But um, if you if you take a broader view of our of our society, there are many people who, in fact, don't feel this way, including within a Democratic coalition, including, for example, black Americans who black Democrats who uh, people hate this. They don't want to hear this. But for many, many years and continuing to this day, black uh, Democrats trailed behind all other Democrats in their acceptance of gay marriage. Um, which is like not intersectional. So people don't accept that result, but it's true. It makes sense because the church is a bigger presence in black America than in the other parts of the liberal coalition. But at some point you have to accept the fact that like the goal can't be for everybody to be cool with each other. Right. I don't, I don't need to get beers with everybody in my political coalition. I need to recognize our shared self-interest long enough for us to go to the voting booth and get what we need. And then we can leave each other alone. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed this like impulse um, within within the nexus or within woke spaces or whatever, where like if someone's going to say um, that they like something, like they like a podcast or they like a book or they like a writer, they always feel the need to point out like, I don't agree with everything this person says because they're afraid that their endorsement of something literally means to other people that they have now endorsed every single thing that that person has ever said or done which is such a bizarre thing to me because I'm like in most cases I don't agree with every single thing that like anyone has said or done you know like it's it's a normal thing that I think like there's this anxiety um that people really think that in order to even express you know admiration for someone let alone like you know, to be in solidarity or to work together. Um, we need to be like on the same page about every single issue. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of it gets down to, you know, I mean, a lot of this stuff is like not explicitly political in the sense of being like, this is the way in which I join other people to gather par- uh, power and make society more according to my morals and my interests. It's like, you know, personality formation. Like, the, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way that all this stuff spread and I have to admit it was stunningly effective was um, it made socially liberal politics, you know, cool in the sense that like um, if you wanted to be someone who was perceived as, you know, cool and savvy and hip yeah. and fuckable and, you know, just generally like an attractive person, you had to have these politics. And that, I mean, you know, <laughs> that sort of conquered Tumblr and from Tumblr took over the world. Right. Um, and it, it, you know, look, it's been absolutely stunning how quickly and how totally this has taken over elite institutions. It's not just, absolutely. Uh, it's not just Ivy League universities anymore. You know, no. the, the military is woke and Goldman Sachs is woke. The problem with that is that, um, you know, when you make politics about like your, uh, how you are defining yourself socially with another person. Uh, you know, how I am situating myself in a hierarchy of cool people. Um, You are uh, essentially making the linguistic, the symbolic, you know, those things become, you know, the height of your engagement in politics. Like um, if everything to you, if your way of engaging with politics is purely uh, a game of sort of of language or of symbol, then the only thing that you can produce is like control of language and symbols, which Mm -hmm. is why, there's so much just, you know, if someone uses the wrong phrase, um, it, uh, you know, people, people cling to that and they, and they freak out about it when, of course, like what matters is on the ground sort of uh, uh, like political reality in terms of money and structures and laws. And the other problem is that, um, you know, trends change, 
right? Like it's unthinkable right now that there could be such a thing as like a popular and cool position that is conservatively aligned or that is not aligned with sort of woke politics right now. Mm -hmm. But um, things change, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the, the there's a never ending, like, look, the, 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 the 60s became the 70s, which became Reagan's 80s, right? Like, yeah. If you, if you get caught up in the idea that what's sort of in the short term is in your best interest for looking like a cool person, then you're unable to sort of see like history is going to turn around again. Things yeah. are going to change. My team won't be on top anymore. And what will we have gotten for ourselves while we were on top? Right now, the answer is nothing, I think. Yeah. Um, just before I move on to the next question, like what you're saying is just bringing up something for me in kind of two ways, but basically like you mentioned briefly in Planet of Cops something, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you mentioned something about AA meetings, um, mm -hmm. and we're both, um, 12 step people. And like, you talk about this a lot on the pod where like, there's this extreme dissonance between what we have learned in 12 step programs, which is so strongly based in tolerance. It's so strongly based in the idea that like you have to work with people who are profoundly different from yourself and who you would under no other circumstances be having this conversation you know like it's like wine moms and like junkies and like just like a whole bunch of people but like their lives are at stake so they're willing to work together and they have a saying that is um principles before personalities which really made me think of what you were just saying that like if it's all about surface shit and it's all about looking cool and it's all about personalities like there's no guiding principles there and then where does that lead you it's like right. Nowhere. I'm, but I mean, look, look, 12 step is founded on the idea of fallibility, right? Like yeah, absolutely. The, the inevitability of human fallibility. And one of the things that makes um, social justice politics so unlikely to actually change the world is because like they're founded on the idea that you know, human behavior is protectable. Yeah. Like, you can be such a good person and you can care so much and you can learn enough and you can do all these rituals that liberals do. And eventually you'll, you'll never do a, a, a bad thing. But like, yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's not, it's worth saying that that's not just weird in like a short-term political sense. Every major moral system and religion you've ever heard of contains within it the principles <laughs> that you're a fallible creature who will screw up, right? Yeah. You come into the world as a flawed being and you will be flawed. And also you should not be self-righteous because you do not have the moral authority to be self-righteous because you are yourself uh, flawed. That idea, fundamental to every religion and moral system you can ever find, has been totally erased from social justice politics. To be right. fair, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I think yeah. in social justice politics, there's a strong current that's like you are uh, a piece of shit <laughs> and like you are um, inherently racist and you are inherently oppressive mm. every other level that you can imagine um, and that you're, it's a constant struggle for you to actually be good enough to be allowed to exist in this world, you know? Which I think in some ways, like, it resembles the sort of like worst excesses of um, of major world religions, you know. Uh. I mean, either either way, right? Like you're trapped in an extreme that leads you to ask why you would bother to do anything, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> if like that, you know, so that conception, right? So it's most it's most prominent in race right now, right? Which is that white people are either they're inherently racist, which is more and more uh, more and more common, or they're inherently they inherently deepen racial inequality and cause racism to, racism to increase, regardless of how they think or they act. Um, and you can see that this in the switch from, you know, there was racism, which was like you individually had negative feelings towards people of color in your heart. And there's uh, racial inequality, which is like things are unequal between white and black and white is on top because of unjust structures. 
now there's whiteness, right? We're simply like the, the act of occupying the space of being a white person um, inflicts this kind of psychic damage. The question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, let's say that you are a like legitimately politically malleable person. Let's say you're some dude and you did not grow up in a particularly strongly political household and you could genuinely go either way. And these right. people exist. We need them to exist for democracy to work. Um, and you read about all this stuff. You say, okay, well, look, if I have white privilege, no matter what I do, and if I deepen racism, no matter what I do, and if I'm bound to have this stain on my character, no matter what I do, why the fuck would I try to make things better at all? Right? Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm, if I'm harming the world, through my white privilege, no matter what I do, if it's totally out of my hands, then fuck it. I'll just do what's best for me, right? Like there's a there's a complete like the it, all of it is based upon the idea that people are ultimately going to be motivated by like the inherent moral superiority of the values found in in social justice politics, and that's just not how human beings operate, right? Like, look, I'm a Marxist, right? And a lot of people think uh, that Marxism is about selflessness. It's not at all, right? Marxism is all about like activating the selfish motivations of people to create the more equal and just world. Yeah. Uh, it's it's based on the idea that people work out a selfish best interest. And like saying to a generation of white people, okay, you're kind of like stained and you have this, this negative thing on you for the rest of your life and you can't get rid of it, but you still need to do everything that we say politically because doing so is the right thing to do, you're gonna produce a whole generation of backlash. It's inevitable. Yeah, it's not a very smart political strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like I'll go to the next question because I feel like we just went all over the map. Um, but so, okay, so since writing Planet of Cops, which I think you wrote in 2017, mm -hmm. um, there's an interesting thing that's happened where like simultaneously both the calls for like police reform or abolition have highly increased on the one side but then on the other side the intensity of cancel culture has also highly highly increased so like in the in the essay you're talking about that about like movements for police reform um happening simultaneously with cancel culture and i don't know if you could have predicted at that time how much that gap would have widened so that you know we have a situation now like last summer and and since where there's like a simultaneous like normalization of the call for uh prison abolition you know where you have like and police abolition and too police abolition you have this like becoming more and more normalized you know even like whatever people who you would never have thought would say abolish the police are now saying that it's in their tinder bios yeah it's in their yeah. tinder bios and then on the other hand you have people just destroying people's lives like viciously um with absolutely no consideration for their humanity no consideration for like any possibility of redemption like taking away people's employment etc cetera, etc cetera. all of the the cancel culture shit got really extreme um and so basically we just wanted to ask you um why do you think cancel culture and this is weirdly a controversial question but i i think it's very obvious but i'll, I'll let you answer it why do you think cancel culture is incompatible with a politics of abolition or police reform um why do you think those two things don't fit together <laughs> let's start with the with the simple political like how can we convince people to actually make this a mass movement thing um you know there are places that have been experimenting with not enforcing nonviolent property crime 
Um, I think San Francisco is one of them. And what's happening is that you have all these chain stores that are closing, like pharmacies, because um, people are coming and stealing shit every day. And uh, the police won't prosecute, the prosecutors won't prosecute the people who do the stealing. And so the, the stores are just closing because you can't, you can't have, have business that way. Um, to me, this is like the worst case scenario, right? Because you are getting very little social justice benefit out of it, right? Like, um, clearly some of these people are motivated to steal by the fact that they know they won't be prosecuted. And yes, there are people who would be uh, prosecuted anyway. And that's uh, sometimes, you know, some of the consequences of that are going to be unfortunate, but most of them would not be seeing any jail time for a nonviolent property crime anyway. And so, but it's very, very public. And it, like, people are like saying, oh shit, the stores are closing around me because the, the thievery is so bad. Right. Right. Um, so you have this idea that like, we should be deeply, deeply forgiving of what are literal crimes, right? Um, but also be never-ending uh, prosecutors of, just, just constant prosecutors of like um, linguistic crimes and political crimes that with, where the consequences are supposed to be, you know, you're a bad person for the rest of your life. That like, you, know, you, you are now shunned, you are now in exile. Um, that's just not going to work with people in their lives, okay? Like the normal human being, the non-online, you know, brain-poisoned human being has an inherent sense of justice that says, like, I don't think you should be able to steal shit and have no consequences. And then if you tweet the word crazy, you're an ableist who should lose your job, right? Like, that's, that's like, a, that's a, a basic incompatibility. But fundamentally, you know, um, all of this is based upon a certain kind of helplessness in assumed helplessness of people who think that, you know, defund and abolition are helping. In other words, it's based on the idea that black people actually can't help themselves to some degree. So uh, you say, well, look, we're just gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do abolish the police. We're gonna have all this uh, police reform. I support a lot of that. But if you actually get at like a lot of these white liberals and say like, you know, all right, um, the people in black communities don't want this. Okay, so it's really important to say a significant majority of black Americans uh, and black Democrats specifically want more police presence in their communities, not less, okay? Like this is not a popular thing in black America or anywhere else. But if you say like, okay, what's the genesis of this? They say, well, there's, you know, you can't reform the police. You can't, uh, you can't help, uh, uh, you can't, you know, re reform is, is too small, uh, small bore. It's too incrementalist. You can't actually fix what's wrong. But then you say, okay, well, but you also believe that it's the life conditions of people that are leading to uh, crime, which I think certainly is true to, it, to an extent that it, it, it contributes to it. So what you're saying is like, we'll never get people out of the condition in which they're right. committing crimes. And so therefore we might as well legalize crime, right? Like in other words, we're going to stop doing the unequal and racist enforcement, um, not by like helping to end the problems that right. you say are the cause of the crime in the first place, but we're just going to like say, okay, do whatever you want, guys, go over there and do it. And that that's, you know, kind of nuts. And it's like, but it gets to this thing. We're like, okay, so like vaccination rates, okay? Um, there is an anti-vaxxer movement um, that is, there's a lot of it in the left where people, people don't talk about it, like the crunchy left, the hippie left. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, crunchy I, left. <laughs> yeah, I, I live in South Slope and there's a lot of hippie parents here who don't get their kids we, pumps uh, or whatever. Um, we call them the awakened. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. No, um, the awakened, the awakened, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And cool. so there's a lot of those people but okay, there, I acknowledge there's a uh, uh, conservative uh, anti-vax movement and it's mostly, you know, white people who are sort of dead-enders about politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's a problem. 
And many, many, many people are talking about it in the news media. However, um, a significantly higher per uh, percentage of white people are vaccinated than black and Hispanic. Okay, so uh, I believe black people are the racial demographic with the lowest vaccination numbers. Really complicated reasons for that. There's an awful lot of reason to distrust government if you're a black person in this country. There's a reason to distrust big medicine if you're a black person in this country. So I, I get where it's coming from. But there's no discussion, just none in the media about the fact that black and Hispanic people are not getting vaccinated at the same rates because they don't know what to do when there's a racial disparity that they don't have any coherent way to blame on white conservatives, right? right. Like it's really hard to come up with an argument for why um, a black person did not go and get vaccinated because of what some white guy in West Virginia who's a coal miner did, right? And so it just doesn't go discussed. And there's this, you know, th this is like sort of pawned off as like a respect of those communities. But what it really is, is it's like, I don't trust you to actually like be able to do things like get yourself vaccinated because my, my benevolent white progressive attitude towards you is so infantilizing. It's yeah. so superior that like, I just want you to, you to be this sort of blameless being. And I don't particularly give a shit if that actually hurts your life in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There, there's there's been a trend on like uh, we don't we don't fuck with Twitter like we're on Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram. It's crazy <laughs> um, on Instagram. It's definitely me, crazy on me Instagram. Me neither. Yeah. Um. But uh. But yeah. So uh, there's been this trend on woke Instagram where they're sort of like if you like don't get vaccinated if you're an anti-vaxxer you're like literally c committing genocide. Um. Right. Except if you're black, in which case it's fine because right. because racism, you know. And there's just like absolutely no uh no no discussion of that. But yeah, I mean, it brings us to like one of the, the fundamental sort of contradictions of all the shit, which is this uh, heavy, 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 heavy reliance on identitarianism within the social justice world, right? So yeah, I don't know. There's people who are critical of cancel culture without being critical of identitarianism, right? right. And there's people who are critical of identitarianism without being critical of cancel culture. Uh, but you're critical of both. Um, and, and personally, we think that that's like um, a really important uh, it's, it's really important to be able to see how they connect. But yeah, we wanted to ask you what you think the connection is between identitarianism and, and this like hyper punitive um, um, trend on, on social, in social justice world. Yeah, so look, like, as you guys mentioned earlier, nobody really knows what these words means because they're a, there's a, a prohibition against defining them, right? Mm. Um, you don't, if you use the term identity politics on, on woke Twitter, they'll say, identity politics, what's that? And if you say, uh, cancel culture, they'll say the same thing. If you say political correctness, they'll say right. the same thing. If you say critical race theory, they'll they'll mystify it and they'll say, you know, well, you know, it's it's a very complicated legal term. There's a ref there's a refusal to define terms, right? Because then you can kind of hang out from it. Um, what I take to be identitarianism is um, the idea that the things that divide people demographically, like like race, being the primary one, but other things like like a, a gender or gender identity or sexual orientation, whatever that these things should be the locus of politics and political organization and political thought. That the way that we organize ourselves politically is to think about ourselves in these identity categories first and anything else comes second. Um, and uh, there's a variety of problems with that. And one of the biggest one is that none of these identity groups is in and of itself powerful enough to take a power away from uh, the white majority or from the white male minority that controls so much of the power, right? Like, um, one of the reasons why it's very weird that there is a movement within black politics to sort of shun the idea of coalition with white people yeah. is at 13% of the population and significantly less of the money, you're, you're not going to be able to get what you want by yourself. Like you just can't. Like, this is like just math, right? Like simple math. 
Um, now, the, the rejoinder to that is always that, like, the alternative is being what's called like a class first leftist, which is someone who says, you know, oh, it's not really race. They're just discriminated against because they're poor. And if you, if, you know, if they weren't poor, they wouldn't be discriminated against. No, that's dumb. And having spent my entire life in the radical left, left, yes, I have met a handful of people who believe that. But the vast majority of people who I know who believe in class politics don't think that. We think yeah. that race is completely separate and that you have to attack it as something that is its own thing and that racism is a pernicious and unique evil that's different from classism. But what we do say is the only way that Black people are going to be empowered to secure their own best interests is through a coalition with other people from their same social class, social and economic class. The whole idea, right, is we realize that it's in our best interest to work together mm -hmm. and to come together across difference to work uh, as, a, as a political. So that's the identitarian portion. It's connected to, you know, cancel culture, if you want to use that um, term, because um, a lot of this is, you know, expressed in politically maximalist terms, right? Like, we are going to rescue the world from the horrors of white male patriarchy and heterosexism, et cetera, et cetera. And we're this vanguard of revolutionaries who are going to save the world. But most wokies are people who have quietly given up. Okay, like most people who really express social justice rhetoric are people who don't think real change is possible. Yeah. They think that like um, they were born into a system in which they've been living, you know, neoliberal capitalism, um, the dominance of it predates their birth by decades. And so they can't imagine an actual alternative. And so everything becomes to them a matter of like, uh, okay, uh, I can't change who has what money. I can't change uh, the distribution of power in society, but I can call that person out and I, that individual person, I can get kicked, you know, fired from his job. Yeah, you can't do that. It's not going to work. I mean, one of the really bizarre things about all of this is that they're the ones who say these problems are structural, right? But if the problems are structural, then getting any individual idiot won't do anything, right? Right. Like one of the things that you that I find most interesting is like when someone's a really uh, enthusiastic canceler, you try to pin them down and say, okay, what do you think the outcome of your canceling is going to be? And usually they will just refuse to answer because they know that there is there is no outcome, right? Like you get that if you're right, if your version of politics is correct and there's white male patriarchy in the system and you get one white male canceled and he's removed, the, the idea that we live in white male patriarchy says a different white male will eventually take his place. So you're, you're, you're not doing anything. You're running on a treadmill. They don't confront that because it's not fun, right? So... Identitarianism creates cancel culture in the sense that because identitarians can't imagine what an actually like effective political coalition would look like, because it hasn't existed in their lifetime, they resort to this never ending Salem witch trial because it's the only place where they feel they have any power. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so this is a bit of a weird question. We were trying to figure out how to word it, but basically, um, we kind of talked a little bit about this already, but basically we often joke um, that we want socialism with freaky options. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically like in your, your uh, essay, Planet of Cops, your description of the queers and the artists that you grew up around, um, it's just like, it's such a beautiful image. And it reminds us of a time that, you know, actually is, was mainly over by the time we were like still kids um, being millennials. Right. Um, but a time when, Queers and artists and punks were like truly actually subversive. Um, and when 
when we were, as you say in the essay, the cool ones. Um, and now we're in this weird situation where people who lean freaky, if you're queer, if you're like that type, like not the khaki type of gay, but like a literal queer, um, you're stuck inside woke world. Like you're stuck be being a cop in woke world. Um, and then on the other side, like socialists and people who are, um, who are critiquing this shit and who want like real socialism, who want real leftist politics, they tend to be often critical of freakiness mm -hmm. um, because they see it now as a sign of wokeness. And so like, you know, um, there's like a lot of making fun of the wokes for like their septum piercings and their weird haircuts and their polyamorous lifestyles. And there's like this meme that's like, um, yeah, like go to the BDSM dungeon for your polyamorous orgy after the anarchist book fair or something. It's like right. being one of wokes, but I'm like, that's like literally calling me out so explicitly. That sounds like fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really fun, right? And so I don't know, like we think a lot about how to bridge this and it kind of goes back to the stuff that we were talking about earlier about like subversion and like mainstream, like trying to build coalition and build politics that appeals to the masses. But basically we wanted to ask you, can you imagine a left with freaky options? And if so, how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, so there's a few things I want to run down here. First, I think it's important to say, like some people identify like a post left, which I don't even fucking know what that would be, or an anti-woke left. This whole there's there's an attempt to create like a coherent structure that like and suggest that like me and Wesley Yang and Jesse Single and all these people like the, we're the same and we're not. Like I I've never uh, I would not belong to any of those groups and I don't have no interest in it. I say what I think is true and like I oftentimes very often like political tendencies are projected onto me that I've never had. Right. Um, I'm definitely pro freaky. I think yes. that um, sick. I think that um, you're, look, it's just you're, you're you can't you can't make freaky people unfreaky. We've tried that for many many yeah. centuries, and it's been misery for everyone involved, and it fundamentally has not worked. Right? Like the Catholic, the Catholic Church is a prominent example. Right? Um, I do think that there's you know like there is a real permanent trap between like you know there are joys and freakiness. And they tend to be eroded by acceptance, right? Yeah. So I have a friend um, uh, who came out as gay at, I think, 37 years old, a couple of years ago. Okay. He's someone I've known my entire life. Um, I was aware for a long time. Um, but he did a, he had a very classic kind of experience, which is that, you know, um, you know, he started to have sex with other men when he was in his late teens, but he was always ashamed of it. And he, when he went to, to Craigslist and he would have long-term girlfriends who he would cheat on with other men and he would feel terrible shame. And, you know, and, you know, he, he always described himself as a cliche in that way. And when he came out, um, and I was talking to him, um, not that long ago, like a year ago, and he was saying, you know, we were talking about the things and he was saying, Life is, un, you know, he has his first, like, boyfriend that is known as his boyfriend, which is great, and I'm very happy for him. But, I, you know, we're talking about the changes, and one of these things he said is that, like, sex is less fun, right? Because, like, as fucked up as it is, the sneaking around and the shame was, like, bound up in the pleasure for him, right? Right. And there's a lot of people for whom, like, part of the pursuit of freaky sex is, like, the fact that there is something illicit about it. And the more that, like, you hear about uh like snm clubs on the view right like the less it retains the edge that gives some people their thrill right. i don't know i don't think there's any like solution to that i just think yeah. that like we all have to negotiate those things i just i hope it doesn't leave people feeling like i mean it's you know the, there's this classic thing in the sociological literature about porn that like people start out and it's like you know 
one guy and one girl missionary position. And then like three years later, they're searching for the most degraded shit because right. like they get, they, they need to find more and more. I, I don't think people are wired that way in real life, the way they are in porn, but anyway, but um, yeah, I'm pro freaky. I think people are freaky by nature. I think that like, um, however many people I don't subscribe to the idea. I mean, look, I have no idea if there are more transgender people or if more transgender people are revealing themselves, it's not really my business, but I think there's lots of people who don't, sort of subscribe to top-down uh, uh, moral uh, and social and sexual codes. And it would be bizarre and pointless to try to de-freaky the left. Um, I think that, um, do, you know, like it's like the debate about kink at pride, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't feel a lot of personal investment in that one way or the other, because I don't give a shit about pride. But I do think that like, yeah, we do have to have a debate about what spaces are spaces that are designed to be maximum, maximally sort of attractive to other people and which ones are designed to celebrate the freedoms that we're fighting for. Um, but uh, at, the, at a certain fundamental level, right? Like um, we need freaky deekies in the left because the experience of being someone who is marginalized for a reason other than being poor is an experience that needs to be part of our coalition. Mm -hmm. To build the kind of political body that we need to win we need people who are not just poor people or working class people or whatever, but people who are sympathetic to that cause. Part of the reason that, for example, um, gay men were part of a left-wing coalition for so long was not merely because like left-wingers were like, oh yeah, I want gay people to have rights, but also because gay men had the experience, right, of being someone who did not operate within the power structure for a reason other than economic reasons. Mm -hmm. And part of the the shame of, you know, I think that like, you know, sort of, again, those khaki wearing traditional boring cisgender gay men um, are sort of being written out of the LGBTQ movement in some ways. Yeah. Part of the problem with that is that like they had money and organization and they had political savvy because they had been doing it for so long, right? So you need people who understand what it's like to be marginal, even if they are not currently poor, right? Yeah. Because that helps to expand the moral imagination and you say, okay, I feel like an outsider and like I've never been in your power because I'm a freaky in some ways. This person has been, was born poor and has never come close to power. I feel solidarity with him. That's like the basic like left-wing political plan. If we don't have that, I don't know what we have. Mm. Absolutely. So we're going to get back to uh, the spicy shit a little bit. You recently published um, an, ar an article called A Materialist Alternative to Anti-Racism. Uh, can you explain for those who haven't read it, uh, the basic uh, thesis or the argument that you're making in that essay real quick? Sure. Yeah. So like, if you look right now, like billions and billions of dollars are being spent on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, trainings at uh, major corporations, universities, large institutions. Um, these have made some people fabulously wealthy. Um, it is really, times are really good financially for you right now if you are a DEI instructor. Um, uh, <laughs> The, the purpose of these, supposedly the purpose of these uh, instructions, or these, these workshops is to, you know, make your workforce less racist so that there's less, you know, casual racism in your workforce, which is a noble goal. Um, the actual reason that these places pay all this money for DEI training is because in the event that they get, ex uh, get sued for having a racially discriminatory mm -hmm. uh, uh, workplace, they can then point to the DEI training and say, no, actually, we had a, uh, we had a training, so, you know, we care about race. So like, you know, someone who is in the DEI business is literally deriving their money from making it harder for people who have been the victims of uh, uh, racial discrimination at work to sue and get money. Okay, so let's okay. just be, like, be clear about that in the basis. Um, the problem with all this is that like, 
It operates on, under the assumption that the way to fix our racial problems is by fixing individual white people brains, right? right. I'm a white guy. I don't really mean any harm to anybody. I've never said the N-word, but I'm not particularly enlightened. I don't read Embrim Kendi. I go to work in my, my shitty office job, and now I have to go to a DEI training, and suddenly my mind is awakened, and my consciousness is broadened, and I recognize my white privilege, and I'm going to fight for this. It's not how people work. Yeah. People don't give a fuck about trainings at work. Everyone <laughs> sleeps through them or ignores them, right? And even if that happened, if I snap my fingers in tomorrow, every white person is, the, the racism in their heart is extinguished. The distribution of money and power in this country would be exactly the same. Yeah. Right? There's nothing intrinsic to changing the hearts of white people that actually makes black people have more money or be more empowered. I mean, I, I use this statistic a lot because I think it's just, it, it showcases an important reality. Uh, the median income of a black family in the greater Boston uh, area is $8. Okay, it's not $8,000 or $800 or $80, it's $8, okay? That is what racism is, okay? Like racism is the expression of racial inequality in the lived experience of black people and other people of color. The fact that the kids who grow up in those families have to struggle so terribly because their families are so poor, that's racism. There is no way in which a diversity, equity, and inclusion campaign can change that, right? Unless you go to the root Unless you say we need to do something that actually changes the like underlying economic reality and political power reality, you know, what is it like three black senators or something right now, right? Like if, if you don't address that fundamental reality, there's no way that you're going to actually change things for that, you know, black Boston family. And so the whole point of that piece and of my racial uh, politics in general is like, let's get money and power to black people so that they can take care of themselves so that it doesn't matter if some random white person likes them or not. Yeah. Yeah. We strongly agree with that. Um, so that leads to the next question, which is that, so in, in this woke social justice world, um, there's an orthodoxy, which states that people don't, who don't experience a particular oppression. Um, so for example, white people in this example, um, they aren't allowed to have their own opinions on how to combat that oppression. Right. So if you are like a white person who is expressing what you think would be a good strategy for any racism, um, you'll often be told, you know, stay in your lane, take a seat like um, you should defer to a person of color. Um, and so, I mean, we have lots of thoughts about this, but why do you think it's important to think through your own ideas about racism um, and <laughs> what is going on with white people? who believe that it is not their place to decide what they think about racism. Yeah, I mean, look, like people just want, like, uh, white, again, like there's a class of white progressive who loves the idea that their racism in, is intrinsic, right? That they were born with it and that they can't get rid of it because then they don't have to do anything. Wow. Right? Like <laughs> if you, if, <laughs> Yo. like, Sorry, man, if, if, I'm, if I'm telling you that like, okay, you know, the, the real problem is, is like, you know, um, black families are vastly le le less wealthy than uh, white families. And um, the only way that we're going to get that uh, to uh, be solved is, you know, your relative wealth. Now you, I believe in that, that racial progress isn't zero sum. I think that things can improve for black people and white people at the same time. I mean, I, I have to believe that that's the foundation of my politics. But um, at some level, your relative advantage to black people uh, 
um, has to go down. And one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to tax wealthy white liberals like you. And suddenly that's like challenging to like, I can only have four flat screen TVs instead of five, right? Like it's suddenly it's something that is an actual real deal, no bullshit sacrifice. Um, like that you actually have to make in the real world. Whereas if Kendi and Robin D'Angelo are saying, you have to feel like shit all the time about being white, but you're not risking anything. You come out of that DEI training and you've been told for four hours that like, you know, your, your cohort, your racial cohort is the reason why there's so much injustice in the world, but you still go home to your big mansion and you're fine, right? So like one of the reasons that everybody has to think through this stuff, and part of the reason people don't want to think through it is because like, at some point you have to confront the fact that uh, as like all this stuff that is supposedly radical, the Ibram Kendi stuff, the CRT stuff, all this stuff, it doesn't actually challenge anything. It just it exists to make white people feel better. And I think that again, people have given up. And so there's a sense that like, well, we can't do anything else, but we can make it vaguely embarrassed to be a white person, vaguely embarrassing to be a white person. And the problem with that is like, you know, half the time I'm fucking, you know, uh, playing video games. I'm not thinking about myself as a white person. So it doesn't even matter if you make me feel bad about being a white person, right? Like those things, they have no connection to the day-to-day -day process of being a black person in this country. Yeah. And I mean, you know, getting a bunch of white people to feel really anxious and, and, and shameful or something about their whiteness so that maybe they're going to Venmo like a portion of their um, income, but they're, they themselves are like maybe middle-class or broke. Um, to a black person, it's like, that's not the kind of wealth distribution that we're looking for. Like we need something so much bigger than that. And that's going to be something that actually we need power. We need mass power in order to make that happen because I don't think you can shame, um, you know, capitalists into. Well, that's, that's just it, right? Because like the huge majority of white wealth in the United States anyways, is locked up in the bank accounts of like a couple percent of the white population. So <laughs> like right. if you want to if you want to close the wealth gap it's those fucking people whose money you need to take yeah um, and all the ben mowing in the world like it's going to make a small drop in the i mean the, the the wealth gap e even on a per capita basis right even even if you ignore the two sides of the population i believe the wealth gap between black and white americans is in the trillions of dollars and i don't know if there's like a transaction size cap on venmo but i'm pretty sure it doesn't go that high um yeah look only stru <laughs> only structural solutions can solve structural problems yeah but again like this stuff is literally not discussed, right? Like yeah. the, only, the only time that like the black-white wealth gap is invoked is as justification at, for saying, and this is why white people should feel guilty, right? Like in other words, right. it's never seen that as itself. It's only seen as like a way to return to this emotion first, symbol first, linguistic first, vision of race, um, which challenges me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I kind of came to a realization myself, which was just that, like, if you want to take your opposition to racism seriously, if you want to, like, think seriously about it, if you want to, like, you know, promote ideas that you think are going to be effective in terms of actually ending racism, um, in this climate, if you're white and you want to do that work and your ideas are not in line with this woke shit that we're talking about, then you actually have to risk being called racist to to make the points um, that you want to make, right? Um, right? Because a white person talking about this stuff and not quote staying in their lane is often going to get called racist for it. And I eventually just got to a point where I'm like, actually, my commitment to ending racism is more important to me than like protecting myself from that accusation. Um, but I think a lot of people aren't there. Yeah. But also, like, you can't, like, you know, um, you just it, you the structural approach decenters yourself, right? Like, who, 
you know, yeah. It's, the thing is, like, I'm I'm glad that you like have gone through these like ritualistic practices to shed racism. It doesn't fucking matter what you are, right? Yeah. I mean, you your individual possession of racial sentiment is totally irrelevant to me because it doesn't matter in the world. It has nothing. It, you know, it, it it can't possibly matter on the scale of the problem that we're talking about. Yeah. There's an added weirdness to all of this for us because we're Canadian, um, right. and specifically we, we we live in Quebec, you know, which is barely even Canada. Sorry, Canada. Um, and um, and so we're sort of in this weird position where we're supposed to be um, like, if you're part of like the woke left in Canada, you're supposed to be um, only really thinking about and talking about um, the racial issues and the and the the racial um, what's, uh, stakes. Um, in the United States, you know, and um, it's really fucking weird because like if you start talking about the fact that like, you know, actually, well, you know, right now everything's focused on on um, on blackness and black people uh, in, in terms of the, the racial sort of debate. Um, and if you start talking about the fact that like in Canada, you know, black people are a couple percent of the population. Um, they come from a very different, uh, you know, root like it's it's mostly people who are migrants from the caribbean and africa especially in quebec right um you know it's, it's a completely different group of people and and to even be calling them sort of black in the same breath as we're talking about black americans is like a weird thing all on its own you know um and then you know talking about the fact that like the the disparity between like white and indigenous people is like way bigger in Canada than the disparity between white and black people is. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that is, is, is really in our um, political, it's not on our, our political sort of uh, table at all mm-hmm. and on the woke left in Canada, which is fucking bizarre, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, is I think that like, you know, a lot of the really interesting dynamics that are going down in racial discussions happen in the space of like, Hispanic discussions or indigenous discussions or Asian discussions in a sense, because um, the, the, the black white divide in the United States is so primal and so fundamental and so huge and such a, an object of discussion that like everything that's expressed has been expressed before and everybody is in these lanes where they argue right. about the same stuff all the time and there's not a lot of space for a lot of like discussion. And so like, you know, and stuff that doesn't fit the narrative is, is excluded. So, you know, uh, that, Many it surprises me how many people don't know this. Generally speaking, in the United States, the ethnic group with the highest um, uh, per capita per year, you know, annual income is, is Indian Americans because of uh, quirks of the immigration process. Um, but all, annually, number two or number three, you know, around there is Nigerian Americans, who are some of the most fantastically, uh, um, you know, recent uh, Nigerian immigrants to the United States, and their children are some of the most fantastically successful people in the country. And you know, they certainly are laboring under racism in some sense, but they also certainly are having uh, the ability to sort of rise above that racism for reasons that are, uh, you know, complicated. And it would be cool to sort of look at that and say, okay, you know, you know, what's happening here? But unfortunately, if you don't like, if you don't comport to the, the, the narrative of, you know, we have to think of black people as a permanent underclass all the time, then you can't explore those questions. I mean, to me, like, like the position of Asian Americans in, in American society is really interesting right now. Um, I, I wrote once about, I mentioned, um, so there's these message boards like on Reddit, where the, that are they're, they're called like the angry Asian male board or whatever. Like they they are they're self-described um, angry Asian American men um, who 
feel uh, you know that they have been disrespected in our society and they aren't taken seriously, et cetera. All of which I take very seriously because that's a real thing. Um, these are very weird spaces that I sometimes explore because they go from incredibly woke, right? Like having extremely sort of woke, like racial politics about how race operates in the United States and like white supremacy and that sort of sense of value. And then they become insanely misogynist like that, yeah, right? Yeah. Like they have this really complicated and, and very woke sort of argument about how Asian men are disrespected. And one of the ways this plays out is that all Asian women are bitches and sluts who only want to date white men, right? And it's just like, you just go like, you know, whatever. And the thing that, the reason I bring this up is it's like, um, we have to remember that the conversation always flattens and distorts what is the lived experience of race for every individual. And so that you can have someone who is a college educated, politically savvy, plugged in Democrat voting Asian man, right? Who has in many ways the most conventional socially liberal politics you can imagine, but then who harbors all of this, uh, uh, this, this animus against uh, Asian women because uh, of a really complicated tangle of, uh, of politics and race in like just culture and dating. And I, I, I urge people to remember that like, there's nobody who's not that at the end of the day, right? Like everybody is entangled in all these ways. And the more that you reduce, you know, all racial politics for all identity politics to being like the interactions between these avatars of big groups, the less it's gonna have to say with the actual experience of any individual. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Freddie, if arguing on Twitter is not politics. What is politics? Sure. So I think that uh, <laughs> there's a variety of different ways that you can engage. And I think that it's, if you really want to be useful, it's important to engage in, in various ways. I think that um, you should consider uh, the ways in which you can engage in partisan electoral politics that are consistent with your values and that you see is actually doing some good. So I am not someone who will tell you to vote blue no matter who. Um, I mean, for one thing, people hate when you say this, but almost everywhere in the country your vote literally doesn't matter okay like i mean i'm sorry like this makes people very mad but um th there's just nothing close to a narrow enough margin for your vote to actually matter in any given race but i do think that getting invested in local politics is actually a way for people who are disgusted with with national politics to get involved because there's often better candidates and you can actually get your hands dirty and see where the changes i mean the reason why i started doing housing politics here in new york city is because i can actually see the fruits of my labor i see where you know sort of what happens because of what we're doing which is important for keeping up morale um, and it's just a new way to interact with electoral politics i also think there's ways to engage in activism but like you know there's activism of many different kinds some of it is useful some of it is not if you can find yourself in where you can insert yourself into a particular scenario where you feel like you are reducing uh suffering in some sense for some people right uh, in the short term, uh, then I think that, like, that in and of itself should be enough for you. And if within that you think you're advancing a larger and broader political cause like socialism or whatever, then I think that that's good too. But I always tell people that first you have to engage in, am I helping someone avoid suffering right now? Because if you only look at it in big terms, you're just going to give up anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it can be convenient to and useful to elect Democrats. I think that for all my criticisms of DSA, I think DSA's strategy of getting city council people and you know U.S. representatives, et cetera, getting those people into local races and raising their profile and sometimes getting them elected, I think it's borne fruit and that can be useful. 
Um, but I'm like in, in the whole, in the, in the long run, um, nothing is going to substitute for the fact that um, the, the, I, the myth of the enduring democratic majority where, you know, the United States is getting more and more and more uh, people of color and less and less white. And that means that liberals are going to win no matter what in the future. It's been it's proven to be completely wrong. And you have to do the work of creating cross-racial, cross-class, cross-identity uh, coalitions by telling people that you mean, hey, if you think about it, we're not that different. And what's best for me is what's best for you. Amazing. So um, we're about to wrap up, but I just want to ask you, um, in terms of being leftists who want to push back against this um, woke takeover of the left, um, what do you think might be some effective strategies? I mean, um, I don't think in the short term that institutions can be de-wokeified. I, I, don't, I don't think that you have a chance of like, you know, go, <laughs> right. I mean, if, if you go to your local PTA now in many, many places, you know, the Democratic voting places, it's, you know, they are speaking the way that the, the most radical college students spoke 10 years ago, right? Um, yeah. that, that takeover has been almost totalizing and complete. I think you first remember that these things are cyclical and they will change. Right? Mm-hmm. It is, that, that is inevitable. This will stop being popular. If for no other reason than let, like, Wokeness is very unpleasant, right? Like, it's not fun to do this. Like, it's not fun to be on the, on, as you guys both know, it's not fun to be the, the target of this stuff, but it's not fun to do it either. I mean, it can't be, right? Like, I, I look at like, I look at like how people are living with this shit and it's just like, you it's must stressful. be miserable. Yeah. And this is why, you know, this is why, I don't know if you guys remember, um, you might be too young to remember Sui Park, but um, she was someone who was the face of crazy woke yelling activism in like 2013-ish. And I think she like completely left politics and found Jesus and like became a completely different person. That happens all the time. Okay. Like people fall out of wokeness all the time. And so that's going to happen in the short term. All you can do is you can insist that I'm going to talk to you today and I'm going to argue with you today. And I'm going to stand for principle today on principle that like that what I'm interested is not affiliation with your group. What I'm interested is in like the political and moral and social principle that I'm arguing right now. And if you want to call me a Republican because I'm arguing with you, you can do that. But I am going to relentlessly return the conversation to this is the principle at hand. And I also think it's always very, very important to ask woke people, and what will that do? Okay, like when they make a claim about the world, you follow up with, and what will that do? Okay, we're going to have a DEI training at work tomorrow, and what will that do? Uh, it will educate our workers about microaggressions and workplace racism. And what will that do? Uh, it will prevent them from using certain trigger words that uh, you know could offend other people in the organization. And what will that do? And at some point, you get to the point where the answer has to be it will do nothing. Okay, because that there's there's no there there at the heart of any of this. And so you relentlessly ask for. Uh, for consequences, and then they can ask the same thing back to you, right? I want to pass total uh, student loan reform, and what will that do? Well, it will remove an enormous financial burden from a, a ton of different people, and what will that do? Well, it happens that Black people hold a disproportionate share of the student loan debt, so we should get rid of it for them, and what will that do? That will help cut into the Black-white wealth gap and increase living standards for Black people everywhere, and that's how you, like, you know, you can answer in a way that they can. Right. Yeah, right. constantly revert back to what are the real world consequences of what you're asking for. That's amazing. 
It's a good um, answer. Yeah. So I guess just to wrap up, um, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you um, and follow your work and support you? I'd love to say that you can just Google Freddie DeBoer and get my Substack, but Substack sucks at, at uh, search engine optimization. So it's uh, it is Freddie DeBoer, F R E D D I E D E B O E R dot Substack dot com. Uh, you can read it for free. Almost everything I usually publish like four things uh, a week that are free, and then one that is for subscribers only. Um, I encourage people to subscribe as a way to support me in my writing, not as a way to sort of get access to stuff that you can't see. If you want to see it that badly, email me. I'll email it to you. Um, yeah, and I do podcasts and stuff like that. I'm working on my second book right now. And uh, yeah, you know, um, for now, I'm just going to keep this email thing going and uh, try to pay the rent. Yeah, it's really great. We definitely encourage listeners to check it out and we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, man, thanks so much for coming on the pod. We're really happy to have you. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it.